Good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome. And we are going to get into God's Word in just a moment, but I would like to uh, just begin with a couple of comments about the week that we've had here in Northwest Indiana, which by uh, all accounts has been an historic uh, week. And we have had uh, a number of uh, people in our church that have been affected by this, either you know, water in the basement kind of level affectation, or uh, we have uh, several families in Munster who I think um, Munster probably got uh, hit the worst in all of this. So um, we've heard some great stories about people reaching out in the congregation and helping one another, which is a great sign of body life. And this is something we want to uh, promote and to uh, applaud and to be happy about. So that is really great to see that going on. Um, but a lot of us have been affected. The church was affected. We had uh, some damage. The water just was like coming up through the cement underneath. It wasn't coming in. It was coming like up. And so we had to tear carpet out and do some stuff. And so uh, probably the worst thing for us was that last week we got slammed in our attendance and in the offering. And that's where the price really came for us from the, from the uh, storms. But um, the Lord is faithful, and we have uh, the opportunity, I think, in moments like this to ask questions, important, valuable lessons to be learned in uh, times of floods and uh, financial crisis in our country. So I think it would behoove us to ask the question, what is there to learn in a week when things got destroyed and where finances disappeared? What can we learn in a week like this? Here's the question I'd like to ask is, um, what did the flood reveal? And what did the financial crisis this week reveal? It revealed that money disappears and stuff gets ruined. Now, has this just become true this week or has this always been true? That things in this world go away and that nothing here endures. And the answer, of course, is that this is always the case. We just don't live that way, do we? We think this stuff is going to last forever. The money is going to last forever. And then you have a week like this and, oh, wow, that stuff really can go away fast, can it? So I want to do what uh, Paul tells Timothy and really all ministers of the gospel to do, and that is to remind the rich of something. First Timothy 6.17 As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides everything uh, for us to enjoy. So this has always been true, that the things we have quickly go away. And uh, in weeks like this, I think it's important for us to capture the moment for ourselves and for our children and to say, look at what we learned from this. That nothing in this world endures, and that we are therefore to put our hope in God, not in these things. And my fear is, is that, you know, 8094 is open, and I-65 is open, and the basements maybe are, the water's out, and life just kind of cycles back to getting back to normal. And what can happen is, is that even God's people can miss the lessons learned in a week like this, and just go on living the way that we used to. And to miss the opportunity 
to capture the truth that Paul brings up here, that we are not to live for these things. Our hope cannot be in things that go away so quickly. Who would want to live that way? Our hope is to be in the Lord. And so, as your pastor, I just want to encourage you to consider this and uh, to to, uh, seek in your family and in your home to live for things that will last for eternity. All right. Today, we begin a new series, teaching series here at Bethel. And this is a big deal, perhaps even more than than, uh, we recognize, because the Word of God is the foundation to our church. And what happens is, is that so often it is the proclamation of God's Word that sets the direction and, and that God uses to create new ministries and just shapes the uh, perspective of our church. And we can think about what God did in Luke, for example, this summer when we did our journey with Jesus, or uh, what God did with Ruth when we studied that book, and just various things through the years that have been very shaping to the congregation that we are today. So what we choose to teach on is a big deal because it impacts the nature of the church. And I agonize over this. I do. The next, like what the next thing is, I agonize over it. We, we talk for months, pastors and elders and leaders, and what do you think? And where do you, where are the needs of the church? And where should we go with this? And, um, it's, uh, I really do. I, I agonize over what to do. And so for months now, we've been talking about what to do when the journey with Jesus was over, although we don't want it to be over, do we? No, it goes on until he comes again. But, um, and then it goes on for eternity, actually. So the journey never ends. I want to make sure I say that next service. That was pretty good. The journey never ends. Let me write that down here a second. All right, so... Today, I am pleased to tell you that we are going to begin a series in a very important portion of the Bible that we call 1 Corinthians is the new series. And uh, I'd like to begin with just asking the question, why 1 Corinthians? I got three reasons. First of all, is that all scripture is profitable. All scripture is profitable. In a way, my agonizing over what to teach next here, I don't really need to agonize over it because there isn't anywhere in, the, in God's word that we could go where there wouldn't be things that would be profitable for us. This is God's revelation to us. All of it is. So it doesn't matter if we get, you know, we're somewhere buried in some big book in the Old Testament, you know, Ezekiel. Or if you're, over, if you're there in Leviticus or something and you're reading through, uh, that is there for our benefit. Um, and so this is important because it, it's, it, we don't want to just cherry pick the very best passages that sort of say things that we want to talk about. All of it is inspired. All of it is for our good. This is what Paul says in second Timothy three sixteen. all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable so get that all is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Or every, for the church to be competent and equipped for every good work. The whole Bible is here for our benefit. Something to remember when you are reading through it in your own uh, time with the Lord. Every verse, every word is there by divine inspiration. And God has something for us in it. Secondly is, as we begin to think now about Corinth and the Corinthian 
culture, there is so much that is similar to the American culture. And the more I read about it, the more it seems like I'm reading from today's newspaper here in the United States. Corinth was specifically, and to this day, is famous for its materialism and its hedonism. On top of that, the Corinthians loved sports. Loved sports. They hosted, second only to the Olympics, the the, the greatest um, sporting event of antiquity was uh, the games right outside of Corinth. So the people in Corinth, they loved the athletes. They loved going to the games. They were talking all the time about sports and all of this. And so does this sound familiar to you at all? We have uh, a culture that is into money, sex, and sports. Hmm. That sounds a lot like, that sounds a lot like where I live right here in the good old U.S. of A. Very much similar. And the more we get through the book, the more you're going to see how similar it is. The third reason is the Corinthian church's culture. It's very ironic, the similarity between the American church today and what was going on in the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth was easily the most uh, messed up, everything not the way it's supposed to be, confusion kind of church in the New Testament. If you're ever playing uh, Bible trivia, although there is nothing trivial about the Bible, but if you play that game, uh, and the question on the card is, what church was just the most out-to-lunch church of all of them in the entire New Testament? The answer is the church at Corinth. They had all kinds of problems. They struggled with disunity. They struggled with factions in the church where some factions were following one teacher and some factions were sort of following another teacher. They were, there was lots of sin in the church and there was some pretty sick sin in the church. Sick even by Corinthian standards, sin in the church. There were marital issues. There were sexual issues. There was snobbishness, sort of a haughty spirit amongst the people in the church. There was a lack of love in the church, and the list goes on. But by far, the biggest problem in the church at Corinth was that the Christians in the church at Corinth had not separated themselves from the culture of Corinth. The Christians looked like, looked like, acted like, prioritized, valued. They looked like the Corinthians who didn't know God. They had never, they had had become a part of the church, but they had never left the mentality of the Corinthian culture and the sin. So they, this is a messed up church. I thought about naming the series, How Not to Do the Church, (laughs) because you can just kind of say, okay, this is the way it was Corinth. Uh, Let's do the opposite of that Uh, because they were just lots of problems. I remember I was down in southern Indiana, south of here, and was, which is everything is south south of here in Indiana. I was way north in Indiana from here. Uh, I was south of here, down near Indianapolis, and was uh, driving down one of these country roads where you end up driving by some little country church, you know, white steeple, little small church. And sure enough, here's the white church, white steeple, white sign out front. And I don't remember what denomination it was. I think it was Baptist. And the name of the church was Corinth Baptist Church. And I remember thinking to myself, who would name their church 
after the church at Corinth. Like, you know, we are messed up royally Baptist church. (laughs) Don't know why they did that, but they did. But if we were to look at the list of problems in the church in America, would the list not be basically the same? We have issues in the church uh, of... Uh, in categories of love and marriage and family and sexuality. There are divisions in the church. There are people that are following this person. People are following this person and not following Jesus. We have uh, similar problems with American Christians looking all too much like the American culture around them so that if you were to pluck a Christian out of the uh, American church and put him next to somebody that is, you know, doesn't care about Jesus, doesn't follow the Lord, it would be hard at times to see any difference in the way that they live and how they spend their time and what they, what they live for. So there is all too often similarity between the culture and the Christian And this is one of the great things about the Bible is that as you read the Bible, you realize that there isn't really anything new. There isn't anything new. We might be a little bit more sophisticated. We've got our our little toys and gadgets. We've got our little crackberries. (laughs) Blackberry, I heard somebody call a blackberry a crackberry. If you know anybody that has one, they're like addicted to it. So they call it the crackberry. And... um, We have these kind of things, but the problems are the same. And the reason for that is that the hearts are the same. The human hearts never change. And that means the problems are always the same. But the good news is it means the solutions are as well. And this is what 1 Corinthians is written for, is to help us with the problems in the church. All right. We are going to be in this book for quite some time, and so um, we need to lay a foundation. And the bigger the building, the bigger the foundation. And so we need to spend a little bit of time talking about uh, Corinth and laying some of the background information. So hang with me in this. This is going to be important to understand the context when we get into some of the uh, problems in the church. But let's talk about uh, the city of Corinth. The city of Corinth was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire, a very important city. In fact, uh, it was the most important city in Greece. And if you know anything about human like civilization, that old Western Civ class maybe that you took in high school or college, then you know that Greece and Greek culture plays a huge part in all of human history. And the most important city in, the, in Greece was the city of Corinth. Now, I have a little map here just to uh, get an idea of where uh, Corinth is at. This is a Google Earth image of the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, so you can kind of see, if you get your bearings here, you see Italy kind of coming down there. So in this little bunch of grouping of islands and little little, uh, peninsulas is Greece. So if we zoom in on this square, this is where Corinth is. And you'll notice that Uh, It's on what is known as an isthmus. And an isthmus is a little land bridge between two uh, bigger pieces of land. And Corinth is right in the middle of this. To To the east is the Aegean Sea. To the west is the Adriatic Sea. And the reason this is important is, is like in real estate, they say location, location, location. Corinth was Corinth because of location, location, location. They were right on this, on this little land bridge. 
And all of the trade east and west in the Roman Empire had to go right through here. And so uh, sailors, uh, you know, merchants, as they were going east or west, they could either go all the way around this big landmass here, or they would pull into the port. There were ports on both sides, and they would actually uh, pull their ship across land on a, on, a, on a little road that they had built. They would basically portage the ship across the little isthmus, put it back in the water, and sail on. And so the result of this is that Corinth, which was right there, where everybody, if you had to go west, you had to go through there. If you had to go east, you had to go through there. They were right in, it's kind of like northwest Indiana. When 8094 is open, that is. There they are. And so they, they were enriched by all of this commerce and all of this travel and tourism. And, uh, so, and, the, and the, the merchants and everybody, everybody wanted to go to Corinth. So, I mean, you could sail all the way around that if you wanted. Or, man, we could, let's, do the, let's do the little Corinth thing. Because everybody wanted to go to this great city. It would be fair to compare Corinth to a cross between New York City in its commerce, and Las Vegas in its sexual stuff. (laughs) That's basically what the city of Corinth uh, was. I don't know, they may have had a saying there, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. This is particularly true of the sexual license in the city. And uh, this is a subject that's going to be common in this book, and the, the, Paul doesn't blush to write about it, and so we're not going to blush as we talk about what the Bible talks about on the issue of sexuality. But uh, this is a huge part of the city of Corinth. Imagine a city whose official god is sex. The official god is sex. Now, they gave her a name, and her name was Aphrodite. And perhaps you've heard that name, or if you've ever used the word or heard the word aphrodisiac, then this is a little tribute to Aphrodite. But she was the goddess of of love, uh, sex, and beauty. And so the city was entirely devoted to the worship of their their goddess. In fact, on the Acropolis, which was a high mountain right next to Corinth, they built this huge temple to Aphrodite. And history tells us that every night at the temple, there were a thousand priestesses who worked the temple area. They were essentially uh, prostitutes. And in their religion, when you were intimate with a priestess, you were, this was an act of worship to your God. And every night, a thousand priestesses there at the temple to Aphrodite. And just imagine in a city totally dedicated to sex, the degradation that that would produce in the hearts of the people and in the marriages and in the families and in children growing up where everything all around them is totally open sexuality. This was the city of Corinth. It was famous for its wealth and it was famous for its hedonism. It was quite a place. Now, what about the church at Corinth? Okay, the church at Corinth. First Corinthians is written to the church at Corinth. What about this church and where did it come from? And we actually are given the story of how the church began in Acts 18. If you would turn there, let's just find out about this church. Where, where and how did it come into being? Acts 18. 
Acts 17 is the story of Paul at Mars Hill in Athens, in Greece as well. And he has preached his uh, well-known sermon there at Mars Hill to the philosophers, some of whom responded, some of whom didn't. But he takes off from there and he goes uh, to uh, to, uh, Corinth. And this is what happens. Acts 18 After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Claudius was the emperor of Rome, and he kicked all the Jews out. And so here we have Aquila and Priscilla. And we continue the story. And he went to see them. This is Paul now. And because he was of the same trade... He stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Aquila and Priscilla were introduced to them. If you know New Testament uh, history, then you are probably familiar with Aquila and Priscilla. And it's always nice and cute, isn't it, when a couple's names rhyme. It's very helpful. Like my sister Terry and her husband, Jerry. Aquila and Priscilla. When they got together, everyone's like, oh, that's nice, Aquila and Priscilla. But they become uh, key players in the New Testament and friends of Paul. They were tent makers. And so Paul's like, I'm a tent maker. You're a tent maker. Let's make tents together. And so they began to make tents just to earn some income. And it says in verse 4, and he reasoned, this is Paul now, and Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that that the Christ was Jesus. And I love that little phrase there. He was occupied with the word. We could talk a little bit about that. We don't have time. But would that all of the Bethelonians were people that were or are occupied with the word. The word may it be said, especially of the leaders of our church, that we are occupied with the word. Paul was occupied with the word as he was, and this is his pattern. He would go into a city, he would go into the synagogue. He was a Pharisee. He had credentials and could walk in there and say, "Hey, I've got you know, listen to me." And he would reason with them and try to convince them from the Old Testament that Jesus was the Christ. And if you know the story of Acts, basically what would happen then is some people would listen, but a lot of people got mad, and so then they would have some kind of thing. They would begin to beat Paul up. They would kick him out of the city. Um, he would begin to minister to the Gentiles. The Jews would finally get so mad that they would really kick him out, and then he would go to another city and he would do it all over again. And this is what happens here in. Corinth. He goes to a synagogue. He begins to reason that Jesus is the Christ. And they got mad at him and they kicked him out of the synagogue. And now in verse seven, it says this, and he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Funny how the Bible includes details at times where you're like, okay, nice to know where his home was. Thank you. Right next to the synagogue. Crispus The ruler of the synagogue believed in the Lord, which would have been a big scandalous thing if the leader of the synagogue believed, but apparently he did. Together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And this represents the beginning of the church at Corinth. Right here. People responded to the gospel, they were baptized, and now there is an assembly of people that is the... the, 
core group of the church at Corinth. And it's an impressive list of leaders that are involved in this ministry. The ones mentioned so far, Paul, Silas, Timothy, Aquila, Priscilla, in a little bit, Apollos is going to arrive. I mean, this is a church that had tremendous leadership and teaching and people that were involved in their, in their beginning. So Paul is there for a year and a half. He gets done with his ministry there, and he goes to Ephesus. This is now Acts 19, where he ministers for three years. While he is in Ephesus, he gets word that things are not so good in Corinth, and he writes them a letter to try to straighten things out. We don't have that letter, okay? It doesn't work. He gets word that there's still major problems at the church at Corinth. He writes a second letter, which we call 1 Corinthians, to them, and that's the one that we're going to be studying. Okay, so yeah, you, you need to know that Paul actually writes four letters to the church at Corinth. We know that because First and Second Corinthians both refer to another letter, different letters. So there's actually four letters to the church at Corinth. Uh, there, the one that we call First Corinthians is actually the second, and the one that we call Second Corinthians is actually uh, the third. So of the four letters, we have the second and the fourth, which we call the first and the second. Do you get that? It's very important that you understand that. <laughs> All right. First Corinthians, the letter, 16 chapters, 433 verses, and I would suggest we savor all of them as we go through. So with that background, let's get into the text. The journey of a thousand miles begins with one step, and we're about to take it right here in the letter we call 1 Corinthians, which was actually 2 Corinthians. But we'll go ahead and call it 1 Corinthians through the rest of the series. Chapter 1, verse 1. And by the time we're done with this series, your Bible will just fall open to it. 1 Corinthians. Are you there yet? I'm just giving you time. Go to 2 Corinthians, and then it's the one before that. Some of you are struggling <laughs> still. And by the way, 2 Corinthians was actually which one? 4th Corinthians, that's right. But from now on, we'll refer to it as 2 Corinthians. But we're in 1 Corinthians now, which is actually 2 Corinthians. <laughs> Chapter 1, verse 1. If you're not there now, too slow. <laughs> Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of the Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. All right, the author of the letter is Paul. And Paul begins this letter the same way that he begins all of his letters. If you read them, you can see that he is, this is how he begins. In his salutation, Paul wrote uh, this letter. I recall when I first came to Bethel, there was some confusion as to what to call me. Because my predecessor here was in his mid-60s and he went by Pastor Troyer, okay? Very respectable man, an older man, uh, a man to give honor to. I was 29 when I came here and this created confusion in the church because I was not somebody to give respect to. And so they were like, 
we're not sure what to call you. What do you want us to call, call you? And I heard that enough. So finally, one Sunday, I said, okay, let me just settle this matter. Turn to Romans 1. Everybody turned to Romans 1. I said, let's read the first word of Romans 1. You ready? 1, 2, 3. Paul. I said, turn to 1 Corinthians 1. We turned to 1 Corinthians 1. I said, 1, 2, 3. Let's read the first word of, of, of 1 Corinthians. 1, 2, 3. Paul. Turn to Galatians 1. And they're like, okay, now we know where we're going with this. And uh, let's read the first word, Paul. And so I said, so do you kind of get what I want you to call me? And people are like, Paul? <laughs> no! It's not what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, yeah. Apparently, Paul went by Paul. He didn't call him Ap- Apostle Paul. He was Paul. So, Steve, it's fine. But the author of the letter is Paul. There is little disagreement about this, um, even amongst liberal uh, theologians, that Paul wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians. And he begins here by establishing his credibility. As an apostle, for obvious reasons, he has written a previous letter and they didn't pay attention to it. It didn't do any good. No changes were made in light of the fact that the apostle was writing to tell them what to do. And so he begins right away by, by reminding them that he is an apostle. Now let's talk about apostle. The word means messenger, messenger. And in the New Testament, Jesus had 12 disciples that spent three years with him. One of them betrayed him, committed suicide. He's out of the picture. They replaced him after the ascension with Matthias. Uh, So there were 12 disciples, which when Jesus leaves, he basically deputizes them and says that I am now sending you out. And he gives them authority. They now become, the disciples become apostles in the church and are the leaders of of the church. Now, Paul obviously was not one of the 12 disciples. He was not there seeing the miracles. He was not there seeing uh, the resurrection, which is why he calls himself an apostle who was abnormally born. In other words, his apostleship is different than all the rest. It comes by divine appointment from Jesus when Jesus revealed himself to him on the road to Damascus. And Paul is given the title by Christ, the apostle to the Gentiles. He was an apostle. And Paul is simply reminding them then, as he writes this, that this is not just anybody that is writing them these words. That this comes with apostolic authority from Jesus himself, given to him by divine calling and by by divine will. It's kind of like uh, when you parents perhaps are leaving the house and you've got children that are old enough to be left alone, uh, oftentimes you will put um, the oldest in charge and you will say to all the rest, your older brother is in charge and what he says goes, right? Which, as an older brother, I loved hearing that. That was... uh, an early power trip in my life to be in charge of the other siblings while mom and dad were gone. But they were basically authorizing me and saying that my word was the word that set the way that things were going to be. This is what Jesus did when he was ascended. He empowers now the apostles and what they say, what they say goes. And by the way, that is still true for the church. That what they have said to us goes. 
that the Bible, which the New Testament specifically, is the apostolic teaching. This is them telling us the way to salvation and the way that the church ought to be and how to live a life that's pleasing to God. And they have the authority here. So that if some Yahoo stands up and says, hey, this is the way that I think it ought to be, we don't go, well, let's just do it your way. We say, no, wait a second. Let's see what the apostles have to say about that. Because what they say goes, not because of them specifically, but because Jesus speaks through them by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to give us an authoritative word. And I'm rather glad that we have it. Yes. So this is why, for example, our church doctrinal statement says this, that the Bible is the final authority in all that it says. It must be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. I like that a lot. Indeed, it is true. So 1 Corinthians, the author is Paul. He goes on now to say this in verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Now, Paul is right away now going to be beginning to develop his, his point to this, this messed up church at Corinth. And they need to realize a few things. And here's the first thing. And he says this right away, that the local church is God's church. See where it says to the church of God that is in Corinth. One of the huge problems at the church, in, uh, the Corinthian church, was that there was this kind of haughty, snobby sort of feeling where they thought that they were better than other people. And where they sort of thought that they were the repository of what God was doing was there at the church at Corinth. I mean, after all, we are the Corinthians. Everybody wishes they were a Corinthian. We're better than all the rest. I met a Dutch lady right before this service. And uh, I myself am Dutch, and uh, you, you may not know a lot about Dutch people, but you probably know the Dutch people's favorite saying, which is that if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. If you've never heard that, this is thing. Now, non-Dutch people think that's cute. Dutch people believe it. I mean, this is like... <laughs> Actually, the mentality amongst the Dutch that there are the Dutch and then there are the ain't much people. And I don't know if in Corinth they had that, but I can sort of see that where they would have this saying, if you're not Corinthian, then you ain't much because we are the ones, the whole world wants to come to Corinth. We're where it's at. And it bled over into the church to where there was this sort of haughty spirit that failed, listen, that failed to see the big picture of what God was doing with the gospel around the world. And to recognize that the church at Corinth was one little tile in the mosaic of the kingdom of God. They are not the sum of the kingdom of God. They are one little part of the kingdom of God. And that this church was not their church. It is the church of God, not the church of Corinth or the church of the Corinthians. It is the church of God. It is God's church. It wasn't their church. It was God's church. And the reason it was God's church is that he paid for it. 
with the precious blood of his own son. He paid the ransom price to redeem the Corinthians from their sin and to give them eternal life. How dare they then act like they're the ones that paid the price? It is God's church. And my friends, that same thing is true today. That this church, this local church, is not any of our church. It's not my church. It is not your church. It is God's church. Because he has paid the price for it. And boy, are there problems when people don't understand that in the church. And we take ownership of it because ownership means control. I am in control because this is my church. We've been here a long time. This is our church. No, it's not. It is God's church. Very dangerous to act like you control something that belongs to God. I would not recommend that. And we just want to make that clear here today that Bethel Church is God's church, period. Period. The second thing that he brings out here is the responsibility that the church has to reflect the character of God. Notice that he says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. See that? Sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Now, what tense is sanctified in? Sanctified is a past tense. Called to be saints would be a future sense. And so here we have now this tension, and this is an important tension for Christians to live in. Sanctified is the, is the word that means to be set apart or to be holy. It's difficult to translate in the English because it really is more set apart than like ethically, morally. There is a dimension of that. God is holy in the sense that he is entirely set apart from us. He is in his own category. Christians have been sanctified by declaration from God in justification that he has declared us to be righteous. He has declared us to be holy. Now, are we holy? Am I, when somebody prays to receive Christ as their Savior, are they suddenly holy, actually? No. They're still the same stinking sinner they've always been. However, through the miracle of justification, God declares the sinner righteous and treats him as if he or she is and bestows love upon him, adopts him or her as his child. Still a sinner, still a sinner, but now an object of God's love, not his wrath. We have been sanctified. We have been declared holy, yet we are called to be saints. We are called to be holy ones, referring to the fact that we're called to live that out. And this is the tension. I have a friend who he calls this the sanctification stretch. And I remember seeing him teach it. And he, was, he would do this number like this. It's the sanctification stretch. I have been sanctified. I am pressing towards being sanctified. I have been sanctified. I'm trying to become what I am in practice. So that the sanctified in the past is a positional sanctification. As God declares us righteous, which Jesus has made possible by his cross and the shedding of his blood. So that God can do this and his justice is not uh, compromised in any way. He actually declares us as righteous. But now as Christians, we want to become what we are. To become in practice what we are before God in position. This is our calling to be saints. And obviously, I hope that you're looking at it and going, wow. 
We are far from that, aren't we, in our daily practice. Like, think about this in your own life. Just, like, grade yourself this week. Think of a grade that you would put on your living holy life this week. Okay, so just think about that. All right, how many people would give themselves an A? A? Any A people here today? A minus? All right. B plus? Any, any B plusers here? B? B minus? C? C plus, maybe, I don't know. C minus, D, <laughs> and of course, it's a silly question because the real question to answer that would be, what's the standard, right? Because all of us are really hoping that we're graded on a curve, right? Because we're thinking to ourselves, well, I don't know what grade I would give myself, but I'm pretty sure it would be better than the person next to me. So, if the criteria for an A is Jesus, okay, that's A. How many A's? B's? C? F? Okay, good participation in that. All right. You get an A for honesty (laughs) on that. But this is, this is the challenge now. We are called to become like Christ. This is sanctification, progressive sanctification. And we are all in this process of becoming what we are. He has declared us righteous, but we are called to be saints increasingly in our life. And we're going to see just how far this Corinthian church, uh, how far away they were from that holy goal. This was one messed up church, we actually might find some comfort in it. So third thing is this, and this uh, salutation is that everywhere the church is, it's all there. Everywhere the church is, it's all there with, he says this with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Now, the reason that Paul says that I'm writing to you and to everybody who call upon the name of the Lord, was that one of the things that Paul wants the Corinthians to to do is to get over themselves. That haughty spirit, that snobbishness, where they sort of thought, you know, we're really where it's at. We've got God's work right here. This is the place where God is doing his thing. He says, listen, you've got to realize that you are merely a part of the larger work that God is doing in the world. And this larger work is typically known as the universal church. Why don't you say that with me? The universal church. The Bible teaches that there is the universal church, which would be every Christian from all of time, the church. And then you have local churches, of which we are one, which are basically like franchises of the kingdom, little extensions of the kingdom of God, the church, throughout the world. In the New Testament, uh, we have... The word church applied to a house church in Romans 16, 5. An entire city here in 1 Corinthians 1. All the local churches in a region 
Acts 9.31, and all Christians from all time, Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so we find that this word, it's a very elastic word. It can apply to a small group of people that gather together. It can apply to a region of churches, and it can apply to all Christians from all time. And the point is this, that wherever the church has gathered, that it is all there. It is all there. The true church is there. There is nothing that is lacking. I've told you before how much I hate the signs out front of churches where they have the cute little sayings on them. Yeah. Should a pastor ever use the word hate? I non-love them. (laughs) Non-love them. And there is one that I especially non-love because you see it so often and it just annoys me to no end. When you drive by the church and there is, there's the sign where they have the little movable letters and it says on it, C-H blank blank C-H. And then down below it says, what's missing? You are. Like somebody's going to drive by and go, oh, that's cute. Let's go there. I non-love that a lot. (laughs) What's missing? You are. Actually, no. Wherever the church is, it is all there. This is one reason that I really don't like the terms megachurch or now gigachurch is another term that's used. Um, I used it last week as a, as a uh, description, but I don't like the term. We don't use that term around here because I don't like what it insinuates. It insinuates that there are some places where there is like more of that mega church. There's more church there than maybe in a smaller church where they don't have as many people. There's not, there's not as much church there as there is at the gigachurch. No. I don't think so. The question is not how many people are gathering there. The question is whether Jesus is there or not. And he has made it clear in Matthew 18 that where two or three are gathered, there he is in the midst of them. So the issue is not the number of people. It is the one, Jesus, through his word and spirit, being there. That is the key. When that is the case, the church is there. And this, I think, is an exciting thing for us to realize as we gather in our small groups or we gather in a ministry group or we get together in different things. The church is there because Christ is there. And so the church at Corinth, you guys need to get over yourselves. Don't think that you're the only place where this is going on. Wherever God's people gather, it is the, it is the kingdom of God that is there through the gospel and with him. Everywhere the church is, it's all there. Which, by the way, means that right now, here in this place, the church is here. In this service, it's here. Why? I believe that Jesus is here through his spirit in a way that if we had the eyes to really see and sense, we would recognize that what is going on, even as we gather in this service right now, is a, is a glorious thing. The presence of Christ with us through his word and through his spirit and through his people, Christ has gathered 
and we are the church. All right, let's get to our next thing here, and this is really where we'll be wrapping up today. We're just going to get through the salutation. Paul now writes this, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is known as a salutation. We, we have salutations today. When you come walking up to somebody or you see somebody you know, you don't just stand there and go. Now, some of you do, and you need to work on that, okay? But generally, we will say, hello, howdy, how you doing, nice to see you, that kind of thing. That's known as a greeting. And in the Roman world, what they would say is they would basically say, greetings, greetings to you, a common salutation. In the Jewish world, they would say, shalom, which means peace. And so what Paul does here is he basically Christianizes the Roman uh, greeting and adds the Jewish greeting, and he says, grace to you and peace. And he does this in all, of his, in, in all of his writings. And by the way, it is always the same order. It is always grace, then peace. It is never peace, then grace. Always grace and peace to you. Now, why would that be the case? Why always grace first, then peace? And there is much theology here. Because grace is the basis of peace, isn't it? That God's grace to me through the gospel, received by faith, now is the basis by which I have peace with God and peace with my brothers and sisters. Grace and peace. The one always precedes the other. I remember when I, years ago, in early in my ministry, uh, my ministry when I was being mentored by uh, Kimber Kaufman down in Indianapolis, there was a man that was dying of AIDS at the hospital that wanted Kimber to come and to talk to him. He knew he was about to die. And I got to go along, although I wasn't allowed to actually go in. And when it was done, I remember asking Kimber, I was like, well, what happened? What did you say? I was trying to think to myself, what would I say to somebody that was dying in this way? I said, what did you say? He said, well, I got in there and, and the guy wanted to know, um, he wanted to know that he had peace with God. He wanted peace. I said, well, what did you say to him? He said, I told him that objective peace always precedes subjective peace. Objective peace always precedes subjective peace. In other words, you want to feel peace with God? You want to feel inside subjective peace with God? You have to have objective peace with God. And this is now why uh, uh, the gospel is so important because this is how a sinner who is, the Bible says, an object of God's wrath actually is made right, reconciled with God. How does this happen? It happens by faith in Christ as Savior and Lord that now there is an objective basis for a holy God to declare me righteous, which we just got done talking about, and for me to have peace with God, Romans 8.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. What is that talking about? A feeling of peace? No. It is objective peace that there is no longer enmity between me and my God. I have, there is a, there is a, there is a, a peace treaty. 
And not just a peace treaty, there is a love treaty. And not just a love treaty, there is an adoption treaty. And not just that, there is an eternity together. This is peace. And the church and the message of the church and this church is all about grace and peace. And it's only found in the church. I remember, oh boy, I was going to look this up. I should have looked this up because it came to be at our service last night. I remember somebody, and I don't remember who, was asked, what is the difference between Christianity and all the religions of the world? I think it was G.K. Chesterton. And he wrote the paper that asked the question, and there was one word in the answer, and the, and the word was grace. Christianity is the only religion in the world that has the concept of grace. Unmerited favor from God to me as a sinner, whereby I am at peace with God. Christianity is a message of peace, and the church is where real peace is found. One of the things that I have enjoyed so much in the last many years that I've been here um, is that through the church's ministry, I've been able to travel in various places of the world and to do different things in ministry. And uh, I didn't really, I hadn't hardly done any of that prior to coming to Bethel, and this has been a real blessing to me. Thank you. But one of the things that I've learned is that when you get into a new culture, you have to learn a few of the basic words if you're going to even get around. Otherwise, you're going to be one of those people that meet on the street and you go, you know. So one of the things that you, you learn, first of all, is how to say hello. Okay? Hello. And so I've been able to learn hello in various languages of the world. For example, if you were to go uh, to India, get off the plane. If we went on a trip to India, we'd get off the plane. I'd be working on this word with you. We'd get off the plane and uh, we would say to the people there in India, Wandanamalu, Wandanamalu. And they'd go, Wandanamalu. And you feel good when you say it right. Or if we were to go to, uh, to Israel, we would say, Shalom. Okay, Shalom. Uh, if we were to go to Italy, we would say, Buongiorno. Buongiorno. And the funny thing in these moments is, is if you're like, they don't know who you are, whatever you say, buongiorno, they're like, <gasps> and you just have to stand there with like that look that says, I am a stupid American. I have no idea what you are saying. Well, anyway, this last uh, early summer, late spring, I uh, went to Romania with Pastor Brad, and we uh, were there with our missionary, Scott Staub, uh, which was so fun because I didn't know he was, he was actually in our service last night, and so he sat over here and I said, now, Scott, you verify that this story is true. Uh, because we get to Romania, and the word in Romania is pace, or the word in the Romanian church is pace. It means peace. Let's practice it together. You might go to Romania, you might need to know this, Okay. Actually, why don't we do that to one another? Can we pretend we're a Romanian church right now? You just say pace. Can you say pace to each other? Just try that out. Pace. Pace. It means peace. Peace to you. Okay? So we get there, Pastor Brad and I, and we're working on our pace. And we go to the church and we're pace and everybody. Pace. Pace. <laughs> and... 
I thought that that was like the normal greeting in Romania. And our missionary, Scott Stobb, goes, no, 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 no. You only say pace in the church. That's not what you say in the rest of Romania. Pace only is appropriate in the church. Pace only makes sense in the church. Only there do you find peace. Peace makes sense in the church. And indeed it does. This world, what does this world want? What is the religions of the world trying to solve? How can I have peace with God? And in the church, it makes sense. Because there is a basis for it in the work of Jesus Christ. There is a a conduit for it in the grace that God gives to us. And there is an objective basis for peace which is found in him. I have peace with God. Which means that I can have the thing that my heart truly craves. Which is that subjective assurance that I am good with God. It's not a make-believe or my own religion or all that. It is grounded in history. It is grounded in the word. It is found in Christ. And that only makes sense in the church, this church and every gospel church is all about grace and peace. And I wonder today if that is true for you. You have possibly come today and like every human being in this world, your heart desires peace. And you wonder, I wonder if this church has anything to do with peace. Yes, that's the basis of our church. It can be found here, not in us. We are sinners like you, but it is found by faith in Jesus who died on the cross to make it possible for us to have peace with God. And I would encourage you, my friend, to consider placing your trust, your faith in Christ as your Savior and Lord, which is what Paul says here. He calls him the Christ, I'm sorry, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord meaning his sovereignty. Jesus is the word for Savior. Christ is the word for Messiah. In your heart, trusting in him as sovereign, Savior, Messiah. The Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in him and you will have pace. So pace to you. Pace to you. Amen. Let's pray.